We are back for another week in the world of Sasta with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram. And my word am I excited for our episode today as we welcome one of the most defining SaaS companies of the last decade. And so with that, I'm thrilled to welcome Erica Schultz, Chief Revenue Officer at New Relic, the company that gives you the real-time insights your software-driven business needs to innovate faster. And prior to their IPO, New Relic raised over $214 million in funding from some of the best in the business, including Benchmark, Insight Venture Partners, and BlackRock just to name a few. As for Erica, under her CRO role, she leads all go-to-market functions, including marketing, sales, operations, customer success, services, and support. And prior to New Relic, Erica served as Executive Vice President of Global Sales and Customer Success at Live Person. And before that, Erica had an incredible 16-year tenure with Oracle Corporation, where she founded and led numerous teams within the sales organization, including pioneering the company's cloud business and leading teams for North American and Latin American markets. I'd also, though, want to say a huge thank you both to Malin Yen and Jason Lemkin for the intro to Erica's today. I really do so appreciate that, and it means a lot to me. But before we dive into the show today, Troops.ai helps teams improve real-time visibility and collaboration around their most important deals by creating real-time, intelligent workflow for everything related to their customers and prospects. And they make this happen in Slack, where everyone is spending most of their time so that the entire team can swarm around opportunities. But don't take my word for how great Troops is. Just look at their clients. They're working with the likes of Slack, WeWork, Envision, Flexport, and more. So head over to troops.ai to find out more. And speaking of great products that make your life and work easier and faster, you must check out Pilot. Pilot is a bookkeeping company that handles everything for you, so you can stop spending your time tracking financial statements and making cash flow spreadsheets. We all know how much I love to do that. When you use Pilot, you get a dedicated account manager who takes care of your books and sends you an accurate, detailed financial report every month. Plus, Pilot Pilot does accrual basis bookkeeping and QuickBooks online, so you're never locked into a proprietary platform. Add Pilot to your financial stack and get back to what you do best, running your business. Simply head over to pilot.com forward slash Sasta to learn more. And finally, every week we talk briefly to a WePay customer about how they achieve success, and this time we'll hear from Chad Reed, Director of Communications at Jotform. Jotform is the easy-to-use online form builder for every business. Create online forms and publish them. Get an email for each response. Collect data. Hey, Harry. So a big mistake that SaaS companies make is over-monetization. It's so easy for any business to see a dollar number assigned to each user, but when you offer sizable discounts, sales, free features, and rewards, you get something that's much more valuable than just immediate revenue, which is customer loyalty. Absolutely love that focus on customer loyalty there, Chad, and keeping your customers happy is indeed important to maintain success. To find out how to successfully grow payments revenue by over 100% in one year, check out our TeamSnap case study by visiting wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. However, you've heard quite enough of me drearing on. And so now I'm very, very excited to hand over to Erica Schultz, Chief Revenue Officer at New Relic. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Erica, it is absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today, having heard so many great things. Huge thanks to the intro from Jason, but thank you so much for joining me today, Erica. Harry, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Not at all. I'm very excited for this, but I want to kick off today with a little bit about you. So tell me, Erica, how did you make your way into the world of SaaS that I've come to love so much and come to be one of the leading execs as CRO at New Relic as you are today? Well, I actually started in the world of SaaS back in 2005, so about 14 years ago. 
when I was still at Oracle Corporation. And it was right after we'd acquired Siebel Systems. And I took on a leadership role for what at the time was known as the CRM on-demand team. It was this nascent software-as-a-service offering uh, that competed with Salesforce in the market. And we had an instinct that it was going to be a big part of the future. And so I saw an opportunity to get into SaaS early and have been loving it ever since. I mean, what foresight there. But I do have to ask, because you spent an incredible 16 years with Oracle Corporation. So how do you think that experience really affected your operating mindset today? And were there some big takeaways? I did. I spent more than 16 years at Oracle, and I learned so much throughout my tenure there. It was really an incredible experience. The experience I had was I was afforded so many different opportunities along the way and opportunities to build new routes to market, new methods of selling, you know, take new products to market like this offer as a service offering. So I really got experience as a builder, which sometimes people find surprising because it's easy to paint people who come from, you know, big tech companies with one broad brush and assume that you're always part of a mature business. But that was not my experience. Just a couple of examples. When I was a couple of years into my tenure at Oracle, I moved down to Latin America, to Argentina, sight unseen actually, and built out a telesales group in Argentina and then later in Miami, hiring about a hundred people from 11 different countries. And that early building experience really whet my appetite. I came back to North America. We built out the inside sales team in North America over the next five years, building hubs in multiple countries, including in Bangalore, India, and assembling a global community of practice. And then, as I mentioned, in 2005, I took on the software as a service opportunity, which was a very nascent sales team and business for Oracle at the time. But I really found throughout my Oracle experience, this love for building. And of course, I had the opportunity to work with really experienced operating execs who taught me a lot about operating rigor, execution, and working as a team. So it was a fabulous experience. I'm super pleased you said, particularly about the team building element there. I do partially think that a travel book should be in the offing with those incredible travels. But I do want to ask, you said before to me that enterprise is a company sport. Each department needs to re-platform. If we take those in turn, first, what did you mean by enterprise is a company sport, Erica? What I mean by it is that every function in the company will be affected by a move into the enterprise market. And oftentimes companies think that the most important move or the only move is to put your sales reps, for example, in the field close to customers, that it's really a sales-driven transformation. And of course, transforming your sales organization in motion is foundational, but every function in the company needs to evolve um, as a function to serve the enterprise market. And I'm happy to dive into a little bit of detail what that means for different functions. I would love to dive into detail into the different functions. Let's start with the one that's most changed in its kind of structure and process with the move. Well, the most changed is probably going to be your sales organization Um, for a number of reasons. You may evolve from an inside sales-led model to a field-based sales model. That comes with hiring a different profile of account executive, and it probably comes with hiring a different, what I'll call, ecosystem surrounding that account executive. So your pre-sales talent, your customer success talent, each of those things were part of our move to the enterprise at New Relic. So many different kind of functions built out within that sales team. In terms of the marketing, how does that change? Because one message isn't necessarily always transferable when considering kind of SMB to enterprise. That's right. Marketing changes quite a bit. In the early days at New Relic, when we were serving the SMB market predominantly, my observation was that the product 
which was the pitch. And as we moved into the enterprise, we had to evolve our positioning to be more than the product feature function. We needed to assign business value and business outcomes to the features and functions that our product was delivering. So that was one big evolution. The other thing that changes quite a bit as you move into the enterprise for a marketing team is that the marketing team needs to partner with the sales organization in a new way. So not only is the marketing team looking to create brand awareness and drive digital demand for your product facing off to the market, the marketing team needs to face off to the sales organization and deliver enablement and equip that team to pursue new enterprise customers in the market. So the most critical thing is that the marketing leader and the sales leaders be partners and really go to market together. The final element that I would love to ask about how they change, and it's one that really we've seen the category creation of, is customer success. Does that change as you scale up to enterprise? No question. We found that our customer success investment really followed our growth in the enterprise. And that's because as you move into the enterprise, customers are looking for partners to help them deploy more broadly across the enterprise. And you're likely serving a broader set of stakeholders within an account. You're helping the customer assemble a center of excellence in the account. And that takes expertise as well as all the capabilities of your product. You mentioned about kind of moving with the nascent products that you had from your time at Oracle. I'm super intrigued because I get a lot of SaaS founders who started SMB ask me, Harry, we've got something and we need to increase our ACVs and move to enterprise. We're going to move now. How do you know when's the right time to think about moving from SMB and mid-market to enterprise? Well, the beautiful thing with software as a service is the market will tell you when you're when there's demand for you in the enterprise. So certainly at New Relic, we started to see enterprise customers come to us. And usually it was individual developers or small teams within large corporations in the very beginning. They came to us and brought us into the enterprise market. So first you'll see those early adopters in the enterprise, those disruptors, again, whether the companies themselves are disruptors or whether the teams within those companies are more modern and more disruptive. And that's who brought us in first. And then you follow their lead into the enterprise. And as we followed those early adopters lead into the enterprise, they expressed a need from us for more capabilities around things like security, scalability, enterprise management. And that's when we leaned in to really serve the enterprise. You're really kind of touching on the rise of bottoms up sales there and kind of that evolution that we've seen. I'm super interested because I'm always quite perplexed when one has those early adopters within the enterprise, but then one selling to maybe the CIO. How do you think about that problem of agency? And is that one that still very much persists today despite the rise of bottoms up? Oh, they're both so important. We talk a lot about the bottoms up and the top down. Both are incredibly important. From a bottoms up perspective, in particular with what we sell, where we serve a number of different roles within modern technology organizations from developers to site reliability engineers, DevOps, IT operations. We serve all of those stakeholders and we need those hands-on practitioners to love our product and see value from our product. We have to help them solve their most urgent problems that they encounter every day in their roles. If you zoom up to the CTO or CIO who's leading that organization, we need to demonstrate that not only will our product see natural adoption across his or her organization, but also that it delivers business value and that he or she can manage a broad deployment across a broad set of stakeholders and that we can really be a strategic partner. So you're serving different needs of these different stakeholders within an organization, but it all needs to hang together. I'm so pleased you said there about adoption within the organization, because as a VC state, often with the SaaS businesses, it's 
quite common that we see integration and then the services component being looked down upon almost by VCs, obviously often due to the kind of lower margins. How do you think about that today? And almost kind of also in ensuring kind of customer advocacy and adoption internally, how do you think about that services and integration component? Yeah, great question. We find that, you know, on the one hand, we want our product to be so simple and easy to use and and deliver a really quick time to value. On the other hand, the reality of enterprise customers is that they have really complex, diverse environments. And so it's important that we get in as a partner with the right level of services and not a heavy, multi-year, drawn-out, you know, system integrator engagement of years past, but um, that we get in there as a partner and we help them build connectivity between the modern and the legacy environments. And that's how they get the most value out of a solution like New Relics. So it's really about meeting your customers where they are and partnering deeply with them. And we do that with our own services. Uh, We have an expert services team as well as we work with system integrators who are really critical parts of our ecosystem. I'm so pleased you said the word multi-year there because I'm absolutely fascinated by multi-year contracts, which is probably one of the many reasons I'm still single. But it is fascinating to me (laughs) because I speak to Jason Lemkin and he said to me before that multi-year contracts, unless they're paid up front, is really just shifting the burden of renewals from customer success to finance. How do you think about that and really multi-year contracts and their prominence today, if not, or if paid up front? We do a number of contracts that are multi-year, particularly in the enterprise market, in large part because customers want predictability and stability. And so once when we're a strategic partner to them, they're not looking to reassess. 12-month cycle comes and goes pretty quickly. So we find a lot of value in working with our customers to build a multi-year plan for success. And then behind that is a multi-year contract. Absolutely. I totally understand that in terms of those strategic partnerships. I'm jumping around here, which is so unfair of me. Going back to the role changes and the roles, maybe more generally from a macro perspective, the fundamental layer is communication throughout all of them and seamless communication. How do you think about kind of ensuring really strong cross-functional communication and maybe what have you seen work really well? You know, Harry, I'm so glad you bring that up. That is so important. Alignment across all these functions and across your executive team is just so critical in any transformation and certainly as you're scaling into the enterprise. One of the things that we have found so helpful in driving that alignment is grounding everything in the customer voice. So the more that you can bring the customer voice in, whether you do it anecdotally, for example, all of our executives spend time out with customers and then bring the observations back, or whether you do it through a more formal structure like a customer advisory board, which I would highly recommend. I mean, I highly recommend both. But when you anchor everything in the voice of the customer, it's a very grounding experience and it makes it a lot easier to get aligned. I love that grounding in the customer voice. In terms of kind of the people within those roles, you said to me before that kind of great people are often builders who can scale up and down. Can you unpack what scale up and down means with regards to those builders and how you think about adding them to the team? Yes. And I'm so passionate on this topic. What I mean by that is you need to hire people who love to build. So people who wake up every day and choose to be in environments where there is room for them to build something that doesn't exist 
exist to create, and that's where they get satisfaction. At the same time, if you're growing fast, you need those same people to also have seen scale so that they can see around corners and help lead the company to where you need to go. So it is a unique profile, but it's so critical. And when you get it right, it's absolutely magic. So I'm always absolutely perplexed by kind of the interview process. And I totally agree with you in finding those very special, unique people. But it's very hard in such a compressed time that kind of interview processes are. What do you do? What do you think one can do to determine whether their candidate in front of them is kind of a builder that can scale up and down pre-hire? Yes. Interviewing well is hard. It's a craft. I agree with you. And I think that getting at the experiences in an individual's background and really probing on what did you build? What did you create? Asking them what drives them? What were the most satisfying experiences? So if they were operating a bigger scale, I think you can get a little bit at the DNA, but I never rely on interviews alone. I'm a big believer in talking to people who've worked with candidates before, reference checks, informal references, just to get a sense for what really drives them. And will that match with what we're looking for here? I often speak to Jason Lemkin about hiring these kind of special people. And he says, Harry, in startups, you can either hire the burnt out exec or the up and comer who's not ready. How do you think about that today, maybe? And do you think that's a fair assessment given the required profile in this case of kind of the builder that can move up and down? Yeah, well, I'd like to believe that, you know, it's not quite so binary, but I do believe that fast growing companies are a great place for the up and comers who are looking to really make their mark. And ideally you find someone who really hasn't had their breakout opportunity yet, but has assembled a lot of the raw material in their experience. And as part of that has seen scale, maybe for example, they haven't been at the top of the marketing function, you know, in their prior role, but they've been in a number two spot leading, you know, one of the disciplines within marketing and they've seen scale. And then you give them a shot to lead marketing in its entirety. And that's their breakout role. And they're really going to lean into that role and look to make their mark. So I do think that finding those up and comers who are on the cusp is a really great opportunity, but you'd be surprised even folks who've seen scale several different times or who've built several times over when that's their passion, they might be willing to do it again. And I'm convinced not all of them are burnt out execs. It is quite a binary opinion. I do have to agree with you on that one. In terms of the scale up, so to speak, that often uh, one endures at that hyper growth startup, there's also kind of elements of tension that begin to show. I'd love to hear, having kind of seen multiple different business lines that grow and develop, what are the inflection points within company growth where maybe existing systems and processes break down and the, the twangs of pain really come to bear? Yes, building for scale is definitely one of the, the bigger challenges of my role, certainly at New Relic, but for companies going through multiple inflection points, as you say. And I think, frankly, one of them for us has been our growth in the enterprise market and needing to serve enterprise customers. And it's really tested us, a lot of our systems and processes and talent internally to say, do we have the right people, systems, process in place to serve our enterprise customers as they need to be served? And so that's been a great catalyst for growth and maturation, certainly within New Relic. You said there about kind of getting your customers to be served as they need to be. That always requires empathy from your side. How do you get your teams to be empathetic to your client's biggest problems, maybe regardless of scale? And what really works in ensuring that empathy? Yes, I am passionate about building a, a culture of customer empathy, certainly as you move into the enterprise, but not limited to that, as you say. I think it's a great foundation for any business. And a couple of things that have worked for us. First off, we really have tried to dive deep into the different, I'll use the word personas or stakeholders that we serve. There are different roles within an organization that a solution like New Relic serves 
deserves. And so understanding the specific jobs to be done or problems to be solved that each of those individual roles is focused on every day is really important. So empathy for the specific role and the specific job to be done is critical. And that's something that could be led by a product management, product marketing function. The other thing is, again, grounding in the customer voice, getting out to market, just meeting your customers where they are, and then having a system to bring those observations and those conversations back. And again, this could be as simple as taking the first few minutes of your CXO meeting to to download input from customer meetings over the past week. Or you could do the same thing with your sales or marketing leadership team. But looking for ways to just even bring the anecdotal back in a loosely systematized way is super helpful. And then finally, the most formal is the customer advisory board where you develop deep relationships with these customers. You can kind of bring them over the wall and give them visibility to your company strategy and product roadmap and get their honest feedback. And that's a really nice way to have empathy for what they view as top priority. I often have founders come to me and say, I often hear that, you know, I should really present the vision to potential enterprise customers of what we can and will do. But I also don't want them to think that we're not there yet and it's kind of all in the future. What would you maybe advise and respond to a founder kind of asking whether or not they should be open with that vision and roadmap, given that it may be not in the product today? I think the key is drawing the distinction between vision and roadmap. So I think it's really important to share a vision because you want to expose the customer who's about to bet on you as a partner what you're thinking and where you see possibilities in the future. And then don't confuse vision with roadmap. With roadmap, you really want to give customers something they can plan around. And this is where getting that balance right of just enough forward-looking view and just enough specifics, again, for customers to be able to plan, but not so much that you don't leave yourself room to learn as you go and iterate and shift priorities. But I think at the end of the day, transparency, communication, respect for customers' needs and timelines will always be a winner. And all of those characteristics are pillars to successful relationships with your customers. In terms of those relationships, obviously in enterprise, it's ever more important with the long sales cycles and the heavier touch. So having seen these relationships been built many times successfully, how do the very best individuals build relationships with their clients? And most importantly, in my eyes, in a non-transactional human way? Well, I think the key there is human, as you mentioned. So at the end of the day, people want to do business with people. We've all heard it and said it a million times, but it's true. And so being human and letting your customers know that you are a human being and someone that they can develop a relationship with and communicate with and trust is really foundational. But you have to go beyond just that the relationship where I've seen the best sales teams and the best individuals really thrive is when they know how to anchor on value. And it starts with customer empathy, understanding what is the job your customer is trying to get done, and then anchoring your solution on delivering value to solve that problem, to help the customer do that job. And so it's both the relationship and being human and being a great communicator, but then it's also respecting your customer and anchoring on delivering value to them. Merging kind of two of the topics that we've discussed in terms of knowing when someone's the right fit that can kind of build and scale up with the organization, and then that relationship that we just touched on there. Often the kind of super tough element with heavy enterprises, the kind of long sales cycle that's inherent in the relationship process being elongated, so to speak. How much time does one give reps to turn these relationships into dollars? And how do you think about payback period today? Yeah, you know, that's a really tricky question. It really depends. It depends on your solution. It depends on your market. And what I can say is always a fail-safe strategy is identify your target market. And this may be something you have to learn over time and iterate on, but identify your highest potential target market 
market and put your efforts behind those highest potential lifetime value customers. And then keep in mind that if you have a land and expand model, like many SaaS companies do, the time to the initial deal is a period of time, but then time to full potential of that customer may be a much longer time. And you just have to adjust you know, your business model accordingly and your expectations accordingly. No, I do get you in terms of that adjustment. When one really takes this to the extreme and the relationship is so ingrained, it can often lead to partnerships. And often founders come to me and ask kind of, how can I deepen relationships? And is partnerships kind of a really great option? How do you approach and think about customer partnerships, Erica? I think the key for me is that any successful partnership, there have to be three winners, the customer and then each partner, assuming there's two partners in the relationship. So you have to think deeply about is the combination, say, of, you know, New Relic solution with another ISV solution, how is that a win for the customer? And then in this arrangement, how does the other partner win and how does New Relic win? And so we always have to be thinking along those lines. Our customers, again, have been the best guides to what partnerships would be meaningful for them and for us. So again, anchor on the voice of the customer. And we've had a couple of customers turn into great partners themselves. One example is IBM, who has been a longtime customer of New Relics. And then we expanded to include a couple different dimensions of partnership, including IBM does power our data center in Germany, as well as resell New Relic to their customers. Can I ask, when you're a company like New Relic, you have incredible amounts of kind of opportunity for potential partnerships. How do you determine between partnerships to do versus maybe to put on the back burner, so to speak? Yes, ruthless prioritization for sure. I mean, that's a big theme overall, I think, in this business and a fast growing business. And it certainly relates to partnership as well. I think you have to look hard at where can you get the most bang for the buck and then really line up your resources behind small number of choices and ideally achieve success against a small number of partners. And I'm willing to bet that some of those models of success, you can then replicate to other like partners. Um, But pick a few, enjoy success first. And I always believe in with any new partnership, identify a target set of customers where you you can go achieve success together. Then you scale from there. You scale to do more with that same partner and maybe you scale further to do more with like partners. I mean, I feel that I could chat all day and continuously ask questions that are completely off schedule, which is so unfair of me. But I would love to dive into the quick fire round, Erica. So I say a short statement and you give me your immediate thoughts. 60 seconds per one. Are you strapped in and ready? I am ready to go. So the hardest element of your role as CRO at New Relic? The hardest element is probably constant prioritization and making trade-off decisions. I mean, in a growth company where you're going fast, you probably have a target-rich environment and you have limited resources. So you're constantly assessing priorities and making trade-off decisions. Sometimes you're armed with great data that leads you to the right decision and sometimes you're not and you have to rely on your instincts and know when to make a call. So I'm a believer in erring on the side of making a decision, even if it's not always the right decision. I want to make active mistakes, not passive mistakes. And you know, if you make the wrong decision, mistakes are rarely fatal, especially in the SaaS business. So it's that constant prioritization and need to make fast decisions. Tell me, what's the optimal relationship between a CRO and a CEO? Well, I feel really fortunate to have the relationship I do with our founder and CEO at New Relic, Lou Cerny. And in our case, well, I have to believe in all cases that communication and trust are really foundational. So that's number one. In our case, Lou has a really strong product 
product vision and vision for strategy at the company. Um, and I come from more of an execution background. And so we partner and that my goal is to translate his product and company vision into a growth strategy for the company and translate that into execution. And as much as sometimes we find ourselves speaking different languages, because Lou is known as the coding CEO, he's very much you know, steeped in product. And I grew up on the execution side. Sometimes we find ourselves speaking different languages, but the common ground that we find is in anchoring on the customer. So we both spend a lot of time with our customers and then we come back and we debrief on the stories. And that's a great way for us to stay aligned. Tell me, what do you believe in SaaS that many around you disbelieve? It's a good question. I mean, I think what I believe, I think is a common belief is that customers win with the SaaS delivery model and the SaaS business model. What may not be as widely held a belief is that those traditional elements of relationship and anchoring on value and customer empathy, those need to be as strong as ever. So if there's any belief that SaaS is more transactional, I don't believe that. I actually feel that you prove your value day in, day out, month in, month out, and it's an opportunity to actually get much closer to your customers and operate with more empathy. Penultimate one, constructing sales comp plans. What's the advice? Well, it really depends. I mean, it's situational based on the type of segment that you're covering, the stage that your company's at, what success looks like for the sales reps in that segment or territory or region at the time. And if that's true, then what's also true is that your comp plan design will evolve with your business. So it's unlikely that the comp plans that serve you in year one are the same comp plans that will serve you in year two or three. So you're constantly looking to tweak different metrics to evolve with the business. So I would say design by segment and then also evolve over time. You're right. That was a terrible generic question. I'm totally <laughs> one. Self-criticism is key to improvement, I've found. Tell me, final one, what do you know now, Erica, that you wish you'd known at, and you can choose here? It could be at the beginning of your time with Oracle or it can be at the beginning of your time with New Relic. But what do you wish you'd known at the beginning that you know now? Great question. I think I'll start with from the beginning of my time at New Relic, what I wish I had known that I know now is it all comes down to talent. And the more that you can hire people who've seen bigger scale, more than you think you'll need at the time, you'll likely be well served as long as they have that builder profile and can also scale down, roll up their sleeves and do what you need to do You know, in the early stages. What I wish I'd known at the very beginning when I started my career and has certainly played out for me over time is that it's all about how much you can learn. And so really focusing your career decisions on where can you learn the most and having that growth mindset. Failure is a gift, you know, feedback is a gift, but making your decisions based on where you can learn the most, you'll find yourself later in your career with this rich portfolio of experiences that open up a lot of opportunities. Erica, I've so enjoyed today's episode, as you can tell from me, continuously going off schedule, which was so unfair of me, but you did so brilliantly well. So thank you so much for joining me today. And this has been so much fun. This has been so much fun. Harry, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I mean, my word, just such a pleasure. And about 10% of the questions that you actually heard today were on the schedule. So a big hand to Erica for being so fantastic and accommodating with that. If you'd like to see more from us, behind the scenes here at Sasta, you can on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It really would be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, Troops.ai helps teams improve real-time visibility and collaboration around their most important deals by creating real-time, intelligent workflow for everything related to their customers and prospects. And they make this happen in 
Slack, where everyone is spending most of their time, so that the entire team can swarm around opportunities. But don't take my word for how great Troops is. Just look at their clients. They're working with the likes of Slack, WeWork, Envision, Flexport, and more. So head over to troops.ai to find out more. And speaking of great products that make your life and work easier and faster, you must check out Pilot. Pilot is a bookkeeping company that handles everything for you, so you can stop spending your time tracking financial statements and making cash flow spreadsheets. We all know how much I love to do that. When you use Pilot, you get a dedicated account manager who takes care of your books and sends you an accurate, detailed financial report every month. Plus, Pilot does accrual basis bookkeeping in QuickBooks Online, so you're never locked into a proprietary platform. Add Pilot to your financial stack and get back to what you do best, running your business. Simply head over to pilot.com forward slash Sasta to learn more. And finally, every week we talk briefly to a WePay customer about how they achieve success, and this time we'll hear from Chad Reed, Director of Communications at JotForm. JotForm is the easy-to-use online form builder for every business. Create online forms and publish them. Get an email for each response. Collect data. Hey, Harry. So a big mistake that SaaS companies make is over-monetization. It's so easy for any business to see a dollar number assigned to each user, but when you offer sizable discounts, sales, free features, and rewards, you get something that's much more valuable than just immediate revenue, which is customer loyalty. Absolutely love that focus on customer loyalty there, Chad, and keeping your customers happy is indeed important to maintain success. To find out how to successfully grow payments revenue by over 100% in one year, check out our Team Snap case study by visiting wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. As always, I cannot thank you enough for the support, and I can't wait to bring you another exceptional episode next week.